following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. All right, if you would, open up your Bibles or electronic device that has a Bible on it. We are in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, uh, and we are in Genesis chapter 22. Yes, we skipped a couple of chapters because last week um, we were in Genesis 15. Uh, when we started with Genesis, we told you uh, way back at the beginning that this um, whole study is called Familiar Favorites. And what we're doing is we're essentially breaking the stereotype of the uh, felt board from back in Sunday school. Now, if you don't remember the felt board, don't worry about it. You're not missing a whole lot. But when I was a kid and I was growing up, we had this felt board. And on the felt board, you would put uh, actual felt-like people on the felt board. And my Sunday school teacher, whom I love dearly, her name was Kathy Willis. I loved her and pretty much every other girl that was in that Sunday school class. Because um, <clears throat> she would always be like, Jordan, you can't pass notes in Sunday school class. And I was like, Kathy, but the Lord wants me to do these things. She's like, I don't think that's true. And I'm just checking to see if you guys are with it because I just said some stuff that was super funny, but you're not even following attention. So um, some of the things that she talked about in regards to the felt board just uh, didn't make sense or or, uh, she was missing some details. Uh, So we're trying to fill in the gaps, but we're also trying to look at this in regards to the overarching themes with some of um, these major uh, individuals that pop up. As we have done in the past weeks, the goal is to always fill in the gaps from um, one passage to the other. So let me run through pivotal events between Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 21 so we can get updated. Genesis chapter 16, uh, we have Sarai, who is Abram's wife. Abram is known as one of the patriarchs. In the Old Testament, a patriarch is essentially just one of the founders of the faith. In Hebrews, you're going to see Abram, or Abraham as he is later named, uh, called um, the father of the faith because he was righteous, he trusted, he believed in God. Now, Abram is told from Yahweh, our covenant God, that he's going to have a kid. And it's going to come through Sarah uh, or Sarai, and she's going to be later named Sarah. And um, Sarai kind of gets tired of waiting on God's promises. You ever been there before? And so what she does is she jumps the gun, and she says, Abram, what if I give you my maidservant, and uh, what if you have a child with her? Abram is in a predicament, right? Uh, so he says, sure. And here comes a son from that relationship. Hagar gets pregnant. And after she gets pregnant, Sarai and Hagar, imagine this, have some tension, right? In chapter 17, Yahweh reaffirms his covenant with Abram. And he says, Abram, the son is going to come from you. Now, why is this son so important? Well, remember, if you go back into the creation account, the promise to Eve was that there would come one who would crush Satan. 
And the people of Israel are constantly looking for that. And Moses, our author, is trying to remind them that there is going to come a Messiah. And he is going to come out of this line. Now, in chapter 17, Abram is, has a name change, and he goes to Abraham. And that means a father of multitude. Sarai moves to Sarah, and that is the princess. The name change is important because it signifies God making his promise to Abraham being a father of many nations via Sarah's child. Now, the crazy thing in that whole thing is there's validation of that covenant through the institution of circumcision. And if you don't know what circumcision is, ask your mom and dad. <clears throat> Duck that one. <clears throat> All right. But circumcision in the Old Testament or in the biblical text is a visible sign of God's covenant via Isaac's prophesied birth. Chapter 18, angels come to Sarah and Abraham and they say, Isaac is going to be born. And Sarah laughs at the idea. She's like, God, you are slow, and this is ridiculous. It's not going to happen. The idea of bearing a child in her old age is ridiculous. Now, we're going to get into Genesis 22 in just a second, and we realize that Abraham and Sarah are both old. And one person um, who I talked about watching a movie called His Only Son, some of you did that, looked at me the other day and said, "Uh, I love that movie, but the guy in the movie does not look old. He is no way 100 years old. Um, It's hard to find a 100-year-old actor out there. Regardless, um, they're going to have a child. All right. Now, after that, Yahweh informs Abraham of judgment coming on Sodom and Gomorrah due to sinfulness. This is important in the biblical text because as we get later down the road in Deuteronomy, which is the law, we'll see that if the people do what God wants them to do, they experience blessing. If the people don't do what God wants them to do, they experience judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah is a good example of people who are doing the opposite of what God wants them to do. There's a problem, though, in Sodom and Gomorrah because Abraham's nephew, his name is Lot, we talked about him, lives in Sodom. So Abram, or Abraham, has a conversation with God, and he essentially is bargaining for the people of Sodom. In chapter 19, regardless of all of those conversations that took place, Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Lot and his family are spared, though, but his wife disobeys and she dies. So in chapter 20, Abraham travels onward, and he comes to a town where there's a king. The king's name is Abimelech, and he is afraid. And Abraham deceives Abimelech in the same way that he deceived Pharaoh, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, saying that Sarah is his sister. And the reason that he does that is because he is afraid that they are going to take Sarah or that they're going to kill her or whatever the case is. Abraham, even though he's a man of faith, sometimes lacks confidence. And so as the truth is revealed, Abimelech, he's enraged, but Yahweh interferes, or interferes, intervenes, and he spares Abraham and Sarah, just like in Pharaoh. <clears throat> 21, Isaac is finally born. Everybody say, yay. So it took five chapters to get there, but here he is, the promised seed. Sarah, interesting, rejoices, but she is conflicted. Because between Isaac, their child, and Ishmael, Abraham, and Hagar's child, there's tension. And so Hagar and her son Ishmael are sent away. Now, 
This is really interesting because if you study this line, you'll realize this is why there's a lot of conflict between believers in the East, Jews specifically, and Muslims. It all kind of stems all the way back to Genesis chapter 21. Um, so Hagar and her son Ishmael are sent away. Yahweh assures Israel that a future is coming as Abraham and Abimelech make a treaty together so they settle things, and that sets us up for the next chapter, which is Genesis chapter 22. All that to say, today we are talking about what does worship entail. In other words, what does it look like for us to fully worship the Lord based off of this familiar favorite? The story that we have in the text that is true, by the way. This isn't just put in here as something that is a good story. This is biblical content in regards to what it looks like to follow God's commands. So let's look at verse 1, Genesis chapter 22. Big numbers are going to be the chapters. Smaller numbers are going to be the verses. Why did I give you all of that background? Because the very first verse says, after these things. What things? You're welcome. After all of these things happen, chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, God tested Abraham, and he probably should. And he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here am I. Now, when we talk about worship, that word is going to pop up in the text. But worship is always going to be in line or in regards to what God's commands are. After these things, God, now if you want to, you can write in your Bible, Elohim. This is not Yahweh. The word there is Elohim, the creator or the sustainer or the sovereign one of creation in Genesis chapter one is speaking. And the name of God here is carefully chosen because it emphasizes an aspect of his relationship to humanity. I am God, the creator, Elohim, and I am also the God, Yahweh, the L-O-R-D, all capitalized, who makes covenants with my people and want a relationship with them, and I am the one who has the ability to test you because I am sovereign. I am the creator. I am the sustainer. I'm the great covenant maker. Now, when it says that he tested Abraham, it does not mean that he enticed him to do wrong. God doesn't do that. It does not mean that he wanted him to do wrong. It means that he tested him to see whether he proved worthy. Commentator Youngblood says it like this. Satan tempts us to destroy us, but God tests us to strengthen us. The tests of Satan are meant to destroy you. The tests of God we welcome because they strengthen us. Some of you are in a test today and you're asking the Lord to take that test away and he's looking at you saying we should keep that because it's strengthening you. And oftentimes tests, just to be fully transparent, are people. And so Abraham's torn. He's torn because he has an affection for Elohim, the creator, But he also has affection for Elohim's gift. And basically what God is doing is he's looking at them and saying, Abraham, which one will you pick? The gift that I have given you or will you pick me? Faith is living within the vision of trusting God and his promises. Verse 2. 
And he said, take your son, your only son. That's interesting because Abraham has two kids. Whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God's really good about giving Abraham directions with little content. And here he's saying, I'm going to make my commands manifest. He tells Abraham, take your only son. Now, a better translation of that would be the favored son. And take him to the land of Moriah, which is most likely Jerusalem, on the Temple Hill. We'll get there later in the text. About 50 miles or three days travel. And when you get there, you're going to offer Isaac as a burnt offering or a sacrifice. Now, we look at this and we say, that's unreasonable. What in the world are you talking about? Well, it doesn't contradict moral law. The firstborn, according to Exodus 13, verse 11, belongs to the Lord. And if God has given you something, guess what? As the creator and sustainer, he's allowed to take it back. And Abraham knows that. Also, child sacrifice is known all throughout Canaan with the Canaanites. So Abraham must have wondered how Elohim would fulfill his promise if his son is not going to be around. Verse 3. And so Abraham rose early in the morning. There's a good case for being up early. Saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut wood for the burnt offering and arose. Can you imagine what Abraham is thinking as he is cutting wood? He arose, he went to the place on which God had told him. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. Interesting, God lifted up his eyes in verse, or chapter 15 to the stars. Here, he sees the place from afar. Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and we will worship. And come again to you. Some of your translations say that we will come back to you. In obedience, Abraham goes quickly in the morning, takes his donkey, takes all of his stuff. On the third day, three days is important. It's a typical period of preparation for something important. Don't let that pass over. No pun intended. Abraham sees this place from afar. He tells his men to stay in the camp. Isaac, the boy, most likely is a teenager at the time. And he is going to worship. Now, if you want to, circle that word worship. It's the first place that we see the word worship show up in the text. And it means to revere or bow down in reverence. Abraham and Isaac are going to go revere the Lord, fear him, and worship him. We are going to bow down in reverence to him. Now, verse 6. Isaac... Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac's back. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. Now, you might not have on his back there, but that's how people carried wood back then. And he took it in his hand and the fire and the knife. There's so much wood there, it would have had to be carried uh, on his back. So they went, both of them together, almost hand in hand. Now, Abraham has a fire, which is interesting, but he also has a knife in his hand. If you want to, you can circle the word knife. Knife doesn't show up a whole lot in the biblical text. Knife is actually an interesting uh, word there. Knife is only used in regards to biblical texts negatively. It never shows up positively. Swords actually are a good thing. 
Jesus comes back riding a, uh, with a sword, right? Like, we like that. I like that Jesus, by the way. Like, some people are like, Jesus is kind of soft. I'm like, you should read Revelation. <clears throat> uh, in Judges chapter 19, a knife was used by the priest to dissect his concubine. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, it says, Knives are used to devour the poor. So look at verse 7. <clears throat> We're walking through the text really well. Isaac says to his father, uh, Dad, my father? And he said, Here, my son. He said, uh, Behold. <laughs> I like how he says, Behold. It's kind of like, This is serious. The fire and the wood are here. Uh, but where's the lamb for the offering? He's a smart kid right? We forgot something at home. Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, again, together. Isaac's question to his father emphasizes, first of all, their relationship. They had a great father and son relationship. There is a camaraderie between the two. Shows Abraham as a parent. Abraham's response is a demonstration of faith. All Abraham knew was, one, Elohim planned the future around Isaac. And two, Elohim wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He cannot reconcile the two in his mind. But yet he worships anyway. He cannot reconcile the two, but he's going to be obedient. Church, How many times do we hear a biblical concept and we think to ourselves, I cannot reconcile the two in my mind. They both make sense, but I'm called and commanded to do something with it. I'm called to obedience. That's faith. Abraham trusted Elohim to provide, even if that meant Isaac would be brought back from the dead. And what's interesting is, If God would bring Isaac back from the dead, that would be the second time he would do it because Sarah's womb was thought to be barren or dead. And the second time is he would be brought back to life from the altar on high. Now, Hebrews gives us great context into everything that transpires in regards to Abraham and Genesis. And in Hebrews, it says, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. Even in the midst of tragedy, God was able to do great things because faith in God's commands is the first thing that worship entails. True worship is looking at God's commands and saying, I believe that those are true. You are able to do far more abundantly, the New Testament writer says, than I could ever ask or imagine. So faith starts with trusting God's commands. Then it moves into obedience of those commands. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar. I can only imagine what he's thinking as he's building this altar. He lays the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on top of the altar on top of the wood. Now, here's the deal. We usually read the Bible through masculine eyes. Can you imagine what Sarah is thinking at home? What is happening? right now is so huge for her. A mother's heart hurts. Don't forget that. Okay, so after arriving where Elohim told them, Abraham binds, and that word is found nowhere else in Scripture. Nowhere else do you see that word bound. It's in context of ritual sacrifice. Rabbis call this story the aqueda, which is a Hebrew word for binding. 
and they laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Scripture indicates that Isaac shows no fight. You talk about Abraham being a man of faith. He passed that down to his son by modeling what faith looks like. And Isaac lays on top of the altar with no fight. I love the faith of Abraham, but Lord, make me like Isaac. And he shows trust in his father. And he shows that his father's faith is going to be confirmed. Both men, if you want to write this in your Bible, are obedient. There's two forms of obedience transpiring here. One from Abraham, another from Isaac. Verse 10. Then Abram reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, now the interesting thing in that wording is the. You need to make sure it's the. It's not an angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. Called to him from heaven. And said, Abraham, Abraham, I think he screamed it. And the reason I think he screamed it is because my version in the English Standard Version has that exclamation point after the second Abraham. And he said, here am I. Now, just as Abraham goes to slaughter his son, the angel of the Lord speaks. The angel of the Lord here, I believe, is a theophany, a visible manifestation of God to humanity. In other words, Jesus. Because... The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is linked to worship. In chapter 13, verse 15, you see it there. In the New Testament, it's an angel of the Lord, which is different from the angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord in the New Testament announces the birth of John the Baptist. An angel of the Lord in the New Testament announces the birth of Jesus. An angel of the Lord in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, calls himself Gabriel. The angel of the Lord is never Uh, mentioned in regards to a name. We would say that's a theophany. Verse 12. And he said, don't hurt him. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Now I know how strong your faith is. Now I know that you fear the Lord. Can people say that about you? Interesting. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Yahweh knows Abraham would not hold anything back. He fears him. Now, we have to, in today's society, have a healthy fear of the Lord. Jesus is not your buddy. He's not a friend that you accepted on Facebook or social media. He's called a friend of ours in regards to the fact that he became like us. But we fear him. We have a healthy fear of who God is. Not an unhealthy fear like you have of your father if you grew up in a, in a bad uh, family setting. That word fear in the Old Testament means a reverence for him. So much so that it impacts the way you live. I wake up in the morning fearing the Lord. It changes how I conduct my attitude. It changes how I uh, speak to my wife and to my kids. That's the healthy fear of the Lord. It's reverence. To fear Yahweh means to revere him as sovereign, trust him absolutely, and obey him without question. You can doubt. Absolutely you can doubt. 100%. You can look at God sometimes and be like, Lord, that's your way. But I doubt 
that's good. And he will prove to you all the time that it is. And you're allowed to, to question in regards to doubts, but obedience has to be full, as Abraham does. He does not withhold his son, the treasured possession in his hands. In other words, let me say it like this. A true worshiper of God holds nothing back from him. They obediently give him what he asks and trust that he will provide. And here is the provision, verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, which I think is, the same, is interesting, it's the same word that Isaac uses in asking for a sacrifice. Behind him was a ram, which means he looked back. And it was caught in a thicket by horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. Can I just point something out here that I think is really kind of interesting? God doesn't tell Abraham to take the ram. There's a lot of common sense here. Sometimes I think the answer to your prayer is common sense. There's so many people who get an answer to prayer and they're like, well, Lord, that's a ram. Still going to kill him. God's like, hey, dum-dum, that, right? That's, that's the scenario. I just think it's interesting that God doesn't have to tell him that. He just knows. It's amazing to me how many people will be like, you over-spiritualize things sometimes. Stop doing that. And I'm talking to myself. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The ram is a symbol of Yahweh's provision at work. First mention here, also, by the way, first mention of worship, also first mention of substitutionary sacrifice, one life for another life. It's implied in Noah's sacrifice in Genesis 8. It's affirmed here. Verse 14. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Well, Abraham offered a ram as a burnt offering instead of his son to worship. It's a foreshadowing of how Israel would later worship and something John in the New Testament had in his mind when he introduced Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 29, <clears throat> as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The key of the entire passage is summarized in the name Abraham gives to the place. The Lord will provide. A basic truth that is going to be repeated again and again and again in the Old Testament. Now, church, the main point of Genesis 22, verse 9 through 14, is not the doctrine of atonement. That's one point, but it's not the point. This passage is a description of how an obedient servant worships the Lord in faith at great cost and in the end receives godly provision. Yes, Abraham did not withhold his son. Yes, Paul would later write, God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. But here we see the greatness of Abraham and Isaac's faith, willing to obey God regardless of the cost. We also see the greatness of submission, the willingness to follow a father to death, believing in God's provision. Worship is obedient to God's commands regardless of the cost. It's what God commanded. And we are either going to obey and experience the blessings of God, which may or may not be health, wealth, prosperity, oftentimes aren't, just FYI. Because true Internal spiritual growth, right, happens in here. It's a heart change, heart transformation. Or we're going to experience judgment. 
Now, it's not over because just because he names the place, right? Now, now what's going to happen? The angel of the Lord, verse 15, talks again. And he calls to Abraham a second time from heaven. I thought we were done. Nope. And he says, by myself I have sworn. Further proof. I think this is a theophany. And declares the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, Now, the angel of the Lord's second call is a reassurance. Because both Abraham and Isaac are waiting for godly outcomes, and they're doing this in faith. Yahweh's already walked between the carcasses. We talked about that in Genesis 15. He's already affirmed it through circumcision. That's 17, chapter 17. And now here he swears to it. This is the only time that God will swear an oath to do something in the stories of the patriarchs. Now again, we go back to Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, skipping a few verses and looking at verse 16 and 17 says, since there was no one greater to swear by God, he took an oath in his own name. And when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. This is the important part of the text. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. In other words, this is called assurance of faith. That if you come to a relationship with God through faith and trust in Christ, he does not change his mind and say, I do not want you as my child. When I get to heaven, I look at him and I say, you're stuck with me. You said, you said me and you relationship through faith. Did that. You can't change your mind. I know, I studied the doctrine. He'll say, you're right. Because all of this comes through faith. So that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure. That's assurance that he will never change his mind. I go to bed with that verse on my mind sometimes. Now look at verse 17. I will surely bless you. This is reassurance. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars in heaven. Do you remember that, Abraham? When I lifted up your head. The sand on the seashore, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall be the nations of the earth. They will be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Obedience sometimes, church, carries from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. Sometimes we need to be obedient so that our children can experience the blessings of God too. Notice how Yahweh just confirms his covenant with Abraham. And he's adding another element here. Abraham returned to his young. And they arose and they went together to Berseda. And Abraham lived in Berseda. Let me give you three lessons about true worship. And then we're going to tie the whole thing together. And prayerfully, there'll be an aha moment. Number one, faith obeys completely the word of God. I think, I'm just throwing this out here because I'm a human too. I think there's some of you right now who are not completely worshiping the commands of God. I think you know what they are. I think there's just some things that you are not completely 100% sold out for the gospel for. Faith obeys completely. Let me just assure you that God can fill in the gap. You think Satan's biggest deception and lie is that you will not be fulfilled if you leave the things of this world. That's not true. Our faith is confirmed when oftentimes we leave the things that we love the most 
so that our allegiance is the one who loved us the most. Number two, faith surrenders the best to the Lord. It holds nothing back. God does not get seconds. He gets firsts. And number three, faith waits on the Lord to provide all of one's needs. Do not be like Sarah and jump the gun and say, God, what if we do this instead? Our faith is a patient faith. And sometimes patience is painful. Amen? The Lord oftentimes does not provide, though, until personal sacrifice has been made. And what I'm getting at here is true worship is costly. This has always been the case for Israel when they brought sacrifices as offerings. We're supposed to be given in faith so that God would provide all of the needs of each worshiper. Now to the aha moment. Chapter 22 is a prophetic experience. It is a picture or a preview of something else. In just reading the story, we can't help but notice some striking similarities between Isaac and Jesus. Isaac is a miracle baby. God provided a miracle to a 90-year-old womb to give birth to that boy. Jesus is a miracle baby. He was born of a virgin. He had a miracle birth. Isaac was promised long before he was born, years before he was born. Jesus was promised years before he was born. 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah who will come. Isaac was named before he was born. Jesus was named before he was born. You will call him Jesus, for he will save the people of their sins. Now, let's scan the text. Look at verse 2. Take your son, your only son. Hold on a second. This is not, like I said, his only son. He has two sons. First one's Ishmael, but God says, take your only son. Hebrew calls him your only begotten son. You see, this was the son of promise, not the son of flesh. So God recognized Isaac as the only son. Notice something else. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, all Bible scholars will tell you something. All Bible scholars will tell you that whether a word first appears in Scripture, it is noteworthy, it's significant. Take notice of it. It sets the tone for future interpretations. The very first occurrence of the word love in all Scripture appears in that verse. What's interesting to note is what kind of love it is. It is the love of a father for his son who is about to give his son as a sacrificial offering. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Take it a step further. The text says, go to the land of Moriah. What's Moriah? Second Chronicles tells us that Mount Moriah was the place that a man named Ornum had a threshing floor on. David buys that threshing floor. Solomon builds a temple on that threshing floor. And on the temple that was built on Mount Moriah is a ridge of mountains in Jerusalem. If you go north of that temple area to the north where Mount Moriah goes to its peak, the very pinnacle, that place is called Golgotha, Calvary. The place where Jesus would later be crucified is the peak of Mount Moriah. There are no coincidences with God. Go to verse 4. It says, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes. He saw the place afar. In other words, three-day journey to get there. Third day. What does that mean? 
It means that God gives him a command to kill your son. Three days later, he goes to the place and almost kills his son. The angel stops him. It's like a moment of relief. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was dead when he heard God's command. But three days later, he's alive. Here's the point. As Hebrews said, he saw him like a resurrection. He comes back to life. And then in verse 6, Abraham takes the wood of the burnt offering and lays it on Isaac, and he carries it to the place of sacrifice. And like Isaac, Jesus faced a sacrificial death at the hand of his own father. And like Isaac, Jesus too carried the wood on which he would give his life. Like Isaac, Jesus also carried it up to Mount Moriah. But that's where the similarity ends. For Jesus, there's no ram caught in the thicket. For Jesus, there's no substitute that he himself could live. The Father went through with it. The Father in heaven, God the Father, went through with what only Abraham contemplated. God actually sacrificed his son. So when Abraham lifted that knife, all of heaven must have marveled at how a man could love God so much. But when Jesus died on Mount Moriah on the cross, all of heaven was stunned at how God could love mankind so. And all of that causes us to worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you. That you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son. That whosoever would believe in you would not perish but have everlasting life. We praise you that Jesus, the Messiah, the crusher of Satan, is not a condemnation. He is a salvation. And for those who do not have a relationship with you through faith, may they do so today by confessing with their mouth that they're sinners, repenting of that sin, and believing through faith in Christ. May he become Lord of their life. And God, for those of us who have made that decision, may this radical awe sweep over our bodies, and may we be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to live transformed. To be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Savior. To overcome. Not on our own works. Because we would boast about that. But to overcome so that we can proudly profess and declare. That it is only through Christ. Who has given us the great gift of the Holy Spirit that we are able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or imagine. May we tap into what it means to be followers of Christ. May we have the faith of Abraham and the faith of Isaac. May we understand that we are able to do so much more for the glory of your name. So send us out. Send us out to conquer sin. Send us out with the ability to proclaim. Send us out with the ability to obey. And may we welcome your discipline in our life. 
as you're conforming us more and more to the character of Christ. God, we ask for your help. Build in us this awesome trust as we patiently await your return. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.